I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, an artist and psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 261 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. Today we have the second in a lecture series on Psyche and Society, Coloniality, Degeneracy, and Alienation given to third-year psychiatry residents at the University of New Mexico by Dr. Abdel Aziz al-Bawab, a Palestinian of the diaspora. He completed his medical training at Whale Cornell Medicine, Qatar, where he received the Excellence in Psychiatry Award. He is a psychiatry resident at the University of New Mexico, where he also serves as Chief of Psychotherapy and is a recent recipient of the fourth annual Austin Riggs Award for Excellence in Psychotherapy. He is interested in psychosis, psychoanalysis, and liberatory approaches to clinical practice. There is a video of this lecture, including the PowerPoint, up at YouTube. There's a link included in the text accompanying this episode, as well as at the main website, renderingunconscious.org. You can support Rendering Unconscious at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Huge thanks to everyone at our Patreon. Thank you so much for being there and supporting the podcast. Rendering Unconscious is a labor of love. I don't accept any outside funding. I do everything myself from interviews to editing to promotion. And the only support comes from our Patreon patrons. So thank you so much to the fans, listeners, guests, and to our Patreon community. Your support is hugely, hugely appreciated. We've also started a substack, vanessa23carl.substack.com, where we also post exclusive content every week. It's the same exclusive content that we post at our Patreon every Monday. We call them Magic Monday Posts, where we talk about specifically our creative and magical practices. And we've recently started a Discord for our Patreon community where we have threads talking about film, art, music, magic, books. We're reading works in progress and a special thread dedicated to Rendering Unconscious podcast. So join us at Patreon and join us at Discord and join in the conversation. It's been super, super fun to talk with everyone there on a daily basis. You can follow me on social media at rawsin underscore, that's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore at Instagram, and Dr. Vanessa Twoop3 at TikTok. So uh, last lecture we talked about, um, there was a lot of history. Okay, so I mean, I guess generally what we're, Talking about in these lectures, we're gonna we were we met last week. Then there's today, and then there's the next week, and uh, we're just really trying to understand ways in which psychiatry and ideas about the mind and the self and um, you know our science in general are are not just kind of create you know 
objective and kind of created in a lab somewhere that's kind of immune from social, political, economic influences. And there's there's like actually a deeply violent history kind of at the at the heart of what we call modernity. And we, we went into a lot of kind of this history. Um, last lecture we talked about colonialism, we talked about uh, race, the idea of race and how that was invented in a particular violent context, initially to describe phenotypic differences between the colonizer and the colonized, and it was there to justify and legitimate the domination kind of relations that were there. And that's that's how it was kind of how, that's how it arose, and it's got way more sophisticated and developed, and we're going to talk more about that. Um, and then also we went into the way that Europe became at the center of the world. Colonialism um, basically was global, um, and the certain ideas that arose with colonialism that justified Eurocentrism um, also exerted their influence very powerfully across across the globe. So here we were getting some binary, you know, what it means to be white versus what it means to be non-white. You got the rational versus the irrational. You got the primitive versus the civilized. And you're getting a whole kind of set of ideas about what it means to be human that seemed kind of neutral, but they arose in this kind of very violent context and they were reliant on a, on a denigration of the of like the colonized other. And one interesting idea that we kind of talked about is, is a new kind of temporal perspective on history, <coughs> where um, it, basically the idea was that the way that history progresses is you very naturally go from primitive <coughs> and then to like civilized, like very naturally, inevitably, like you just kind of evolve and you kind of you go from color to European. And the Europeans were kind of the protagonists and the creators of, of modernity. And the primitive or the colored was in the past in relation to the European. So you have this kind of new developmental kind of social Darwinist perspective on history. And it's baked into psychology. It's baked into psychoanalysis. That's where you get ideas about primitive defense mechanisms. So these weren't just kind of um, abstract kind of ideas. These were ideas that were absorbed into the common sense of people worldwide. And uh, and they go into uh, our, our psychiatry and our, our, our knowledge practices too. We talked about a little bit of some racial science. So uh, we talked about dreptomania, which is a disease in the brain, right? It's, it's a biological disease of when a slave tries to run away from captivity. Right? So this, this was very well respected, common di diagnosis. It was, you know, it, it wasn't just like a racist doctor, right? This was, this was like the air that they were breathing. This was the water that they were swimming in. These were very common ideas, and um, and they couldn't see it the way that we see it now, right? So it's not, it's not just an individual racist. It's institutionalized racism, and um, we'll go into. That means from, from a quote by Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, who describes it as a less overt, far more subtle, less identifiable in terms of specific individuals committing the act, but no less destructive to human life. And um, it's kind of like the silent racism of established and respected forces in society, and it functioned above the level of individual perceptions or intentions. 
and it worked to maintain the status quo in capitalist societies through such structures as zoning laws, economics, schools, and courts. Okay. So we're going to talk about something called eugenics. Do you, you all know what that is? Yeah. Um, eugenics now widely discredited as unscientific and as um, biased racially, obviously. Dude, you're like kind of, I, I like you, you're like very like, pay good attention. You're like, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I'm paying attention to you. Good, no, no. But I just, you all are. I can hear from you. <laughs> No, I just, I just like John. Yeah. I was like, sorry. So, so what's eugenics? Anybody want to kind of share? Cheating the perfect genes and weeding out the weak genes. Yeah, yeah. Genetic lineage, yeah, to be improved through artificial selection. Better the race, yeah. right? Yeah. Improve the race. That's like the idea. And here, and here's like a poster of it. And only healthy seeds must be sown. And check the seeds of hereditary disease and unfitness by eugenics. Um, very, very popular in the early 20th century. Like this was actually quite a dominant and powerful way of looking at science and looking at um, race and populations. And the idea is that. You want to improve the gene of the human population by getting rid of certain undesirable characteristics. What are those undesirable characteristics? Right, like that's that's where the problem is, right? It's it's it gets um, adopted into Nazism and it becomes about kind of bettering the Aryan race. So let's get rid of um, feeble-mindedness. So like it's, it's like something that they really didn't like, or like mental illness and like things that were kind of not not fitting into like the white. Supremacist paradigm, basically, it's in terms of bodies, sexuality. Yeah, so it was, it was like this racial science meant at developing like a specific kind of um, white person. And they were actually sterilizing people that they deemed should not reproduce. So, um, and they got quite powerful. So let me, let me read this from here. Um, so there are animals. Mm. Well, this is well, well, the doing idea of, yeah. of all of our livestock and crops, mm -hmm. but then apply it to humans. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah. Should we do it then? The humans? No. Danny Dan? Oh, well, yes, because Why? we're, because there it's, it's goal oriented, right? We want to make a chicken that's tastier, we want to make your goal. Yeah, no, but that's that's the humans no, no, farming. Yeah, idea yeah. No, no, no. I'm just wondering. I'm saying like, that, a, like this was a misapplication of something that allowed us to survive in all these different. I think a lot of us. Oh, but yeah. Today. I mean, Monsanto. Right. So, so, Sorry. It's, so, yeah. So it's a science, but it's deeply embedded in a very racist yeah. society. Yeah, this yeah. is a way of eliminating non, like basically. Uh, non-whites and right? non-desirable subjects. So it was deeply violent, and, and it's, it's what influenced yeah. like Nazism. This, this was very much um, the science of the racist, you know. Um, and what American eugenicists believe that degenerate behavior such as alcoholism, poverty, and social dependency were all caused by genetic defects, 
right? So like all of these social problems we have because of like their social decay because of people and their like bad genes. So like the cure for like social decay is through like basically eliminating people with bad genes. And this included like low IQs, feeble-mindedness, abnormal behavior, sexual promiscuity, criminal behavior, and um, and they lobbied. The physicians actually lobbied to get these laws passed for sterilization. And it, the first one was passed in India in 1907, and um, then they kind of expanded it. And ultimately, 30 states had laws. Um, making sterilization legal for people with mental illness or feeble-mindedness. Um, and, and, and a result, around like 30,000 people were sterilized unknowingly between 1907 and 1939. And this was all in California. Um, and who loved this idea? Hitler. Hitler loved this idea. He actually uh, was studying the U.S. and he was quite impressed with the way that um, sterilizations happened in, in, in California. Um, and there's like some more interesting history about the way that Nazi Germany studied the U.S. and specifically Jim Crow laws. There's there's this historian called James Whitman, who's at Yale, and he documents ways that the Nazis were impressed by race laws. And specifically, like there's this one law of the one drop rule, which is if you have like one ancestor who's black, you're you're legally black and you can't marry white. And even the Nazis thought that this was like too much. They like they didn't seriously. They didn't. They had they had less strict laws about what it means for you to be a certain race. So that's just an interesting part of the history, and um, you know people get surprised. Um, why are we talking about eugenics? It's relevant to psychiatry. You know? Do you know who Emil Kraepelin is? How did you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Emil Kraepelin is the father of modern psychiatry. Um, he is hugely influential into the DSM. He had this approach of, of classifying diseases. His approach was to look at observable symptoms and track the course. And this became what it is, what like the diagnostic criteria is. And this is what the DSM is all about. So Kraepelin was very influential and in DSM-3 like there were a lot of new Kraepelians that thought that he's the man and we should this is what we should do um, we should just approach take his approach to Nozolian classification and uh, that's how we will do our diagnoses um, now Kraepelin was was a eugenicist he wanted to improve the race of the German people he was opposed to the welfare state because he thought that um, it's like um, interfering with natural selection and it's helping weak people and that's like not good for the general race. Um, people argue that he was a proto-fascist. So like these ideas that he's coming up with in terms of how do we make the race better, how social decline is rooted in the genes. These were all ideas that made their way into fascism. And this is the father of modern psychiatry. Okay? Um, he came up with dementia precox, which is what we now call schizophrenia. Okay? Dementia precox means Premature dementia, and he was uh, basically looking at patients at the hospital who he described as initially being like very young and, and promising and like they were great, and they slowly declined and became dull-minded. Uh, and he called this 
mentioned pre-pox. So you can kind of recognize when he's talking about, he's probably like talking about like some negative symptoms, right? Um, and for him, like this was a like dismal prognosis, like you're just gonna end up with dementia. Um, and he wasn't concerned with treatment, you know, he was just kind of classifying, documenting symptoms and kind of just being like, oh, I guess they'll just get dementia, and they'll, you know, um, basically um, not get better at all. Which, you know, um, okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll get back to that in a second. He was very much a biological psychiatrist. He was, he thought that this disease is rooted in the brain and all diseases, diseases, psychiatric diseases are generally rooted in the brain. Okay. And he was like, we're saying kind of a eugenicist and kind of really dabbling in this idea that people's genes, people's biologies are what make them undesirable, are what make them degenerates. So mental illness is located in, in biology in a very clear way for, for Kraepelin. And around this time in the US where you're having like diagnosis like cryptomania where um, black people have a brain disorder that makes them want to flee, Kraepelin's ideas became very appealing, right? Like this is a person who's um, giving, I, giving an emphasis on brain biology and it fits nicely into the idea that uh, blacks' brains were not fit for freedom. Okay? So you're not talking about social context, you're not talking about why they might want to flee, all that stuff. So is it served, it, it fit nicely with that. His paradigm, like the emphasis on brain biology is what people, now we can see it as justification, but back then this was science. This was, this was legit, right? So they weren't even, yeah, but it served to justify the status quo, for sure, like a very racist status quo. Um, and so what you were getting is dementia precox, as described by Kraepelin, was a disease of others. It was a disease of them. Like people who are kind of marginalized. Kind of sounds like smallpox, like dementia precox, like smallpox. Kind of sounds icky. He's talking about um, people who are just like kind of, um, um, yeah, very, very kind of uh, stigmatizing diagnosis. And uh, practically every mention of the illness in newspapers between like 1910 and 1930 mentioned it in reference to black people, immigrants, criminals, and subnormals. So around this time, there was this kind of anxiety that America is going to be overrun by um, people, aliens with dementia precox is what they called them. They felt like kind of just people are just going to come in here and they're, and they're like um, insane and they're going to invade this country. And there's a lot of kind of popular reports and journalism about uh, high profile crimes committed by crazy people and they were thought to be to have like dementia precox. Um, so, so you're getting this association between dementia precox and the subnormals, people who are outsiders, like people who are marginalized, right? And um, and people were, were actually saying we should go to the steamships to the immigrants and test test them for dementia precox, and whoever has it should be deported, shouldn't come in. They're also suggesting like the American eugenics movement wanted to go out to the prisons to the criminals, test them for dementia precox, and sterilize those who, who have it. So. Very, very kind of eugenicist, very biological, very much linked with criminality and kind of the undesirable. Okay, that's dementia precox as a brain disease and as the first definition of what we now call schizophrenia. Also yeah. linking mental health with violence. Yes, very much. With criminality. So with, early, yeah. early, oh, yeah. Yes. Linking of mental illness with people are violent. Yeah, yeah. And then, 
Um, Kraepelin's students, Eugene Bluder, um, he came up with schizophrenia. He thought that this is actually not dementia. It's, you know, it's quite different. What, what it is, according to Bluder, is it's a splitting of the basic functions of the personality, right? So here you have schizo, which is splitting, phrenia, phrenia from, from mind, okay? And Bluler was very much psychoanalytically based, okay? So for him, this was not a biological disorder. This was a splitting in the personality. And there was like a heated exchange between Bluler and, and Kraepelin and like kind of a lot of back and forth. Schizophrenia eventually won out, as the term that we use today. And it's for complicated reasons. One of them is that, you know, dementia precox doesn't accurately describe the prognosis, right? We know that more than half of the patients with schizophrenia get better. And um, there was something about schizophrenia, the way that he laid out the, the term, that's very seamlessly aligned with psychoanalytic ideas about the split mind, the unconscious versus conscious. So it just kind of, it, 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 felt, it felt more more um, kind of, in, it felt it felt fit more nicely with the ethos at the time. And so when it crossed the Atlantic between 1920s and 1950s, doctors and, pub, and the public frequently linked this definition, schizophrenia, not with the marginalized, like we know how we're talking about like with people who are violent and people who are like immigrants and invading the country. No, they linked it with the mainstream, even though it's literally, they're talking about the same thing, right? But something about the way that rulers kind of termed it and its associations, it was associated not with the black body, but with the, with the white mind. So you can, you know, you can see like interesting ways that um, the, the, the press was talking about schizophrenia. So you have like this New York Times article, 1936, that was called The Psychic Ills That Trouble Us. And it was describing the pressures of civilization and living in like a civilization and how that caused schizophrenia. So here you're getting troubles us, right? And us is like people in society as opposed to people who are invading it. Um, so psychiatrists were like frequently highlighting the insistence that schizophrenia was an illness of personality instead of biology. And um, the descriptions of the patients with schizophrenia remained largely free of connections to violence, invasions, crime, impurity, or other eugenic statements, right? In fact, schizophrenics were described as academics, poets, eccentrics, and people who like might have like deviated from the norm, but like they're still largely within it, okay? And here like psychiatric textbooks describe schizophrenia as a disease of white male genius, uh, of like it's a, it's a disorder of feeling and thinking, and they were sensitive. Yeah. So here you have you have you have two words for the same thing, right? One of them gets these connotations that are more kind of about criminality, about people who are undesirable, people who are violent, and the other one is more kind of about like a sensitive, white, intellectual, right? And and these two different connotations are like very they have huge implications for the patient, but they're describing the same thing, right? They're, they're talking about the same thing. So it's it's interesting now for us when we kind of think about it. Um, you know, the the social attitudes and the context of the diagnostic label have a huge role in the function that that label plays. Okay. And here you can see like an early ad about the recipe 
antipsychotic, and you can see that's kind of tailored specifically for um, here you have it says like clean, cooperative, and communicative respirate, and you have a, a white woman kind of very gently um, knitting here. So this is this is this is the target population for for schizophrenia in the early 50s. Okay. The the thing is at this time, psychoanalysis in the U.S. was dominant. It was like dominant force and. Schizophrenia, because of Luther's psychoanalytic background, um, and because of his emphasis as this kind of being like a split in personality, it made it way more likely for the public to confuse schizophrenia with neurosis, which is a far more kind of benign symptom cluster in like white, middle class, anxious and obsessive women. That was like the stereotype for like neurosis. So you have that for neurosis, and then you have schizophrenia that is now being conflated with it right now. Now, there isn't like there isn't much of a difference in the public's imaginary between neurosis and schizophrenia. And um, you can see like the very interesting kind of article titles in popular magazines like, are we all going quietly mad, right? Again, these are the mainstream. Are we all going quietly mad, right? Or don't tell them we're all going crazy, right? Which again, in the mainstream. And then this, this interesting title is like, are you neurotic now? And if you are, does it mean that tomorrow you'll be psychotic or schizophrenic? Okay. So, so you're getting here the schizophrenia as a disease of the familiar. It's getting identified with a certain kind of group of people and rendering other people invisible. And very much a disease of white middle class women at this point in history. Okay. Enter the 60s. Okay, very different advertisement. You have like this James Brown figure. You have behind them like this city on fire, which is referencing the civil unrest in the 60s and the race riots. And it's saying assaultive and belligerent. Cooperation often begins with Haldorf, right? And obviously you're a white physician who's being told to be scared of this black man, right? Um, so what's going on in the 60s that is kind of compelling this change? Civil rights. Yeah, so you're having, you're having civil rights that are getting increasingly more confrontational. You're having way more racial tensions. You have black power activists. You have the Black Panther Party. They got guns. They're, they have the Nation of Islam. You have Malcolm X. People are changing their names to like Muslim names. Like America is freaking out. Like racial tensions are very high. And it was slowly developing and catalyzing associations between schizophrenia, criminality, and violence. Okay, so now you're starting to get a different association with schizophrenia. Um, and this book here, The Protopsychosis, by Jonathan Menzel, who's a, who's a Vanderbilt um, psychiatrist, he's a sociologist, goes into very um, incredible detail to this kind of change. And he takes this one hospital in Michigan. Ionia, and he, and he looks at um, the he looks at these patterns, right? So in the 60s, admission of black schizophrenic men went up by 60 percent, uh, and schizophrenia was now way more likely to be diagnosed to a black patient. It was given to 88 percent of black admissions compared to 44 percent of white admissions. 
And it kind of goes into like the details, it goes into like some case reports. And um, there's like this example that I remember of the pa like a black patient who changed his name to like a Muslim name. And in the case report, there is nothing that you would recognize now as being psychotic. But you know, this patient was being called paranoid against white men and, and, and is, is very erratic and agitated. And um, he, this, this, this was a very typical patient in the hospital at that time. Okay. So like somebody who was opposing whatever rules that the government Some yeah. a, a black man who was criticizing whiteness. Okay. Yeah. So not necessarily like hallucinating. No, not, but not nothing like that. Just a different name, refusing to talk to the white doctor, calling like white what saying white devil, stuff like that. Yeah. Just like things that if you look at the context, that was quite uh, normal, normal, behavior. normal behavior for a specific group of activists, right? And a specific kind of black kind of power culture. Well, this was getting pathologized and kind of, um, yeah, labeled schizophrenic. And the paranoia was rational and accurate. Well, yeah. What so they were calling paranoia. Yeah. Right. So they were calling it paranoia and, and it wasn't, it wasn't really paranoia. Right. Or, or, or at least, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. right, right. Um, more interestingly, is you know how we were talking that this was like a this like a disease of white middle class women. He goes into some case reports of of this of the, like some women, and one that comes to mind is um, she was what we would recognize today as severely psychotic, really kind of disturbed. Um, and around this time, her diagnosis was changed from schizophrenia to depression. Okay. So you're getting this very clear and deliberate shifting of what it means to be schizophrenic, okay? And this was around the time of the institutionalization where people were, were let, being let go, but a different group of people were being kind of admitted and maintained. And these were what we were talking about. These were black activists and people who um, were a threat in some way to like the white and power structure. Okay. So within within just like a century, you're getting like this so many movements, so many identifications, so many different associations with one disease, right? Dementia precox, schizophrenia, whiteness, blackness. So like this is all happening, and psychiatrists are practicing in this context. So just imagine that, right? Like our it's like it's it's a lot. Okay. Um so the legacy of this kind of thing that we were just talking about and, the, and how schizophrenia became a black disease is that nowadays, I don't know if you know this, but black patients are four times as likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia. They're, so um, to this day, black people are often misdiagnosed with, with schizophrenia. There's like this huge imbalance, four times, right? That's crazy, that's, that's a big number. And the other thing is, Schizophrenia remains associated with violence, right? And criminality. That's kind of it's kind of a dangerous thing. Um, and we're we're talking a little bit about biological psychiatry, and it's an interesting historical process how these things develop, right? We started off with Kraepelin, very biological, all the problems are in the brain. It moved, the pendulum moved to like psychoanalysis, and that became kind of the more dominant force, everything was in the personality, everything was in the mind, there was 
in collective biology. In the 80s, there was a move back to biological psychiatry. That's where we're at right now. Some people say that right now there's a move, the pendulum swinging again away from biological psychiatry. Um, I, th I, I, I think so. Uh, what we're, we'll, we'll see. But um, that's kind of the way that things shift. Now, if you think about one of the main criticisms of Kraepelin, the DSM-5 approach in biological psychiatry, is that this emphasis on symptoms, where you're only interested in kind of classifying and looking at the course and the symptoms, what it does is you end up neglecting the patient's story, right? So who cares? And, and if you think about it, that makes sense for Kraepelin, because that guy was a eugenicist. He didn't care about your story. You're a degenerate. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that this is something that persists today in the DSM, where still we're kind of in this position of classifying, looking at symptoms, not really attuning to the story. Right? Now, I'm a, you know, like before, before we get into this, like I'm a, I'm trained, I'm trained in medicine, right? I did a year of internal medicine, psychiatrist, prescribed meds, very important. Biology is very important, right? Um, but it's important to also be critical of what it means to be a psychiatrist and kind of look at where we're at and see how things have panned out, right? And there was a lot of hype about this biological psychiatry. In the 90s, George Bush said that this is going to be the decade of the brain. Okay? Billions of dollars were poured into brain research. People thought that we're going to get biomarkers, that eventually you're going to diagnose mental illness with like a blood draw or like a brain scan. Like people generally believe this, and like billions and billions of dollars went into it. I mean, here we are 30 years later. There hasn't been um, any breakthroughs in understanding or in treatment, right? There, not, not much, really. It's kind of been a failure. And, um, and this is not just like me talking, right? Let's look at this guy. His name is Thomas Insel. He's the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. And he says, I spent 13 years at NIMH pushing on the neuroscience and genetics of mental disorders. And when I look back, I realize that while I succeeded at getting lots of really cool papers published by cool scientists at fairly large costs, I think 20 billion, I don't think we moved the needle in reducing suicide, reducing hospitalizations, improving recovery for the tens of millions of people who have mental illness, right? I think in fact, nowadays, there's a higher rate of homelessness and um, the, like the, the life expectancy is like 10 to 20 years less than the average population. That's where we're at for the patients, right? So that's, you know. He said that um, uh, um, a parent stood up once and, and, and said like, you're disgusting. Um, he's like, you don't understand where like our houses are on fire and you're discussing the composition of paint. Mm. Yeah. Like when he was presenting on some of the new research from NIMH, you know, uh -huh. a father of a schizophrenic man, uh -huh. um, and he said, "You don't understand. You're you're discussing it. you're like our houses are on fire. We are in a huge crisis, and you're talking about that's you know, such a good that's such a good metaphor. Yeah. yeah, and you're talking about the composition of paint. Yeah, like maybe it could be this receptor." You, you know, you, you just bring up, actually, I, there's this guy called Pat Bracken. He's a critical psychiatrist in Ireland. He has this paper called Towards a Hermeneutic Psychiatry, right? And, and in it, he describes, like, what is, what is bioreductionism? What is biological psychiatry? It's trying to understand the painting through, through like, looking at the components 
kind of composition of the of like the paint or, or whatever. It's like this very bio reduction. It doesn't have, you don't have any idea what the actual painting is. You're just kind of you know honing in on this very kind of irrelevant, you know, minute detail. And, um, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's it's interesting um, perspectives that get brought up and I feel yeah. like you can see it a lot in in between the um, even the uh, like the, the patients or the people who were, who were slaves and then diagnosed with something that wanted that made them want to um, be free is like the same as um, it's taking an individual out of their context mm -hmm. entirely mm -hmm. and I feel like we do that a lot also with medicine too yes um, and so we yeah. end up. Um, yeah, taking that, taking their personhood away in order, in order to give them the disease. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, the, and the way, the way to like, I, and I, I agree with you that this is an inheritance, like this individualism, like as an assumption of Euro-American psychology and psychiatry runs deep, isn't tenable in a certain way, like to help patients and to understand patients, but it is serving this role of shoring up kind of the status quo and not examining different structures that are probably playing an important role in the psychopathology, mm -hmm. right? So hopefully shifting more to like social determinants of health, mm -hmm. things of that sort could help us understand things better and situate the patients better, as opposed to saying, it's in your brain, Right. And like, that's all I can tell you and kind of move, move on, especially when we look at the way that these things are the context. Right. Like this is this is it's like calling a sunburn. Well, it's in your skin. <laughs> right, right, right. And, it, and let's not forget about the Genesis core to this. Mm -hmm. right? there's, there's something deeply the Genesis about this. And um, it gets very radical. But we shouldn't have to do that. Scratch, right? Like, I think exactly. Like, so, would be exactly. So, so, the pendulum swings while maintaining the discoveries and the insight. It's not yeah. like, so, yeah, so it doesn't just like completely abandon stuff. That's the way that's. Well, but but if there is a biological component that every human society has dealt with what we're calling schizophrenia throughout time, and we can look at more functional societies and how they dealt with that. We're going to get into that. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to get into some of that. Yeah. yeah. Cool. I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, okay, so so what 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 what, what would, if we were to chill out for a bit, right, and kind of stop free and be humble for a little bit and try to understand the story that's being told from the person with lived experience, what would that look like? Um, and this is a book called Emancipatory Perspectives on on Madness. It's very good. It goes into um, it has some clinicians, it has some people with lived experience, and they offer up. Their perspectives on what it means to to have psychosis and to be mad, and there's something ethical, right, in, in this activity of letting the patient define themselves, there is, and that and that alone is, is very important. Um, and we'll and we'll see we'll see that kind of corroborated in some in some literary uh, in some literature, right? such as this study with with uh, Lissaker, and was like a review of the idea of insights. Right? So if a person does not have insight, they're less likely to take their medications, right? They have insight, they're more likely to take their medications, they're more likely to have less symptom reduction. But the paradox is, if a patient accepts the label and has an explanation of their experience as like a disease, they're more likely to be demoralized, 
of the depression and have a poor quality of life. Yeah? And this other review found that people who were people who recovered from schizophrenia were more likely to have disidentified from being sick. Right. So what you're sensing here is that the narrative that is that the person pieces together about their experience, the story that they tell themselves, the meaning that they come to terms with, is vital for recovery. Okay. So, so what are some of those other perspectives on, on madness, right? This, these are all quotes from the book. Some of them are, are really good. So this one here is, psychosis is not a meaningless aberration conditioned by less than ideal circumstances in the gene pool and or childhood environment, but an unshakable commitment to express a particular message, right? That's very different from, from what we think of psychosis as. Another one, this from this from the collective. We believe we have a dangerous gift to be cultivated and taken care of ra rather than a disease or disorder to be cured or eliminated. I like, I like this, this one. Um, a psychotic is a mystic who lost their way. Not an aberrant sickness, but a normative response to horrifying circumstances. We view madness as a process that, with patience and care, can bring about regeneration, renewal, and growth. And we may, in turn, meet the struggles of the world stage with the same faith that, within the turmoil, there is a striving towards something meaningful. Okay. And this one, are you like madness as a symbolic language addressing politically dangerous truths? Reveals a fault within existing social structures that needs to be examined. Um, so, I mean. I'm not, I'm not saying that we should stop being psychiatrists or that we should let our patients treat themselves, right? Um, but, you know, um, I'm, saying, I'm saying to be humble, right? Even in the field where you're an expert, it's very important for patients to integrate their experiences with their own meaning-making process, okay? And there are very incredible people who have, you know, lived experience, and have a lot to teach us. I don't know if you, you know Ellen Sachs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's great. She's, she wrote the Center Cannot Hold. She gave her grand rounds here. Brilliant person. A lot, a lot to teach you as a psychiatrist. So a very different model from like a disease model, right? When, when we were talking about you know, this is um, but very vital too. Okay, and going to John's point. Um, we we're talking a little bit about how certain norms, cultures, social dynamics influence and shape knowledge and practices, right? Social attitudes are not separate from um, what we describe as objective science, right? There's, there's, a, there's a relationship there. Um, and I'll tell you about this very interesting body of research in cross-cultural psychiatry um, so one very well corroborated finding from cross-cultural psychiatry is that patients with schizophrenia in, in the global south have better outcomes than uh, than in North America. Okay? And this was like, in particular, this was three WHO studies, and they looked at um, how how you know how the percentage of patients that have complete remission or like they just have um, better quality, like better function. Okay. Now, the question is why? 
Why is it that people in the global south with schizophrenia do better? It's unclear. They don't know. But there's a very interesting suggestion that it's because of the psychosis itself. The very experience of psychosis, the quality of the psychosis is different. Okay? So there's this qualitative study carried out in Stanford by Tanya Lerman, and um, it found that patients in the USA were more likely to report violent commands than those in India and Ghana, who are more likely to report rich relationships with their voices and less likely to describe the voices as the sign of a violated mind. Okay? Now, bear, bear this in mind, right? This is something that we know from CBT for psychosis. It's not the hallucinations and the psychotic symptoms themselves that are distressing, it's the beliefs that you have about them, right? So there's something about these cultures in the, you know, the global south that helps the patient adopt a more relational attitude towards their voices. And, and, the, and the answer is probably because their very conception of a mind, their very idea of what it means to be a self, is different. So in the US, in the North American West, it's a very individualistic understanding of what it means to, to have a self, to, to have a mind, to be a self. It's kind of like you get this image of almost like a private container, right? And here you have like questions like uh, the first rank symptoms of schizophrenia, like, do you feel like thoughts are being inserted, thoughts are being withdrawn? You're getting like this implicit image of a container where thoughts get inserted and get withdrawn. If you ask a patient in, in, in Ghana or in India about thought insertion and broadcast, they don't get what you're talking about. It doesn't make sense. Because at a very fundamental level, they don't make the same assumptions about what it means to have a mind. They have a very collective kind of relationality. Okay? And this is why their auditory hallucinations themselves are different. They, they're not as distressed. It doesn't seem like there's this voice intruding on my private space. It doesn't, it doesn't get experienced that way. Yeah. So, so what you're sensing here is that the very idea that you have about what it means to be a mind, would, that's relevant to the psychotic symptoms that you have. And, and it's, it matters for prognosis. It's a better prognosis. You know? So that's a very interesting finding. And it goes back into like what, what Molly was saying in terms of there's like this individualistic assumption that doesn't, doesn't, uh, it's, uh, it seems it seems sus. Right? It's like <laughs> it's not right. But it doesn't make uh, yeah. It's not it's not like science. Mm -hmm. But was it related at all to kind of the spiritual beliefs of the culture, like the, like a more materialistic Western approach versus a more? It, it was correlated with with the collective, with this like kind of sense of self as being okay. collective versus okay. individualistic. But not yeah. But not this spirituality of general. Yeah, like, I don't know. That were more than yeah. I don't. I don't know how much of these. Okay. Yeah. Say that again. That were more than just a collection of items. Um, it's it's correlated with. And I mean, if if you also think about the symptom itself, right? Um, it looks a certain way when a certain culture has a certain image of a mind. Yeah, no, I get that, but it's also kind of the connection of the, not just the self to others, but the, the self to the physical and to the metaphysical. I can, I can yeah. share with you the paper and yeah, you can look into yeah, it. And, yeah, if you're yeah. interested. Okay. Um, so, 
to wrap up. Just like the concept of a self beyond the body. Right, it was interesting you said that. It had more to do with the culture. Yeah. Right. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this is about, like I was saying, it was about collective subjectivity versus individualistic subjectivity, mm -hmm. like the sense of self. Right, but even that can be confounded by a materialistic perspective versus the idea that like we are connected by something more than just genes, right? Mm -hmm. Oh no, I, I assure you that that's not how people think like outside, like in that particular context. Right, right. So that's what I'm saying is that like that sense of the mind being connected to other people is in a more fluid dynamic sense. Yeah. Could be, well, it's, it's tied in with this idea of the mind being more than just um, yeah, so, so the idea yeah. of the mind yeah. being more of the brain, that's a Euro-American assumption. Yeah. That's 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 a very if you we were talking, we were talking a little bit about this, like in our last lecture. This is it's not separate from colonial modernity, right? Yeah. It's, its origins are in are in Covito Ergo Sum, Descartes, I think yeah. therefore I am. Yeah. And it's it it it's linked to an idea of Europe as the center of the world. And it's also linked to what it means to have a body and to have mind. It's very complex. Yeah. No, but but it's not. It's yeah, yeah, it's yeah. inseparable from yeah. this very colonial, Eurocentric history, right? This individualism. Mm -hmm. It's it's an assumption, of a very specific kind of way of organizing the world, mm -hmm. and it ties into capitalism too. Like individualism in general has its own history, and it's and it's rooted in like Euro-American exploitation. Of the world mm -hmm. and emergence of capitalism on the backs of this exploitation. Yeah. So it's so it's its own history is like kind of tangled up in these questions. Yeah, and the, and the words we use are gonna carry that like. Yeah. But anyway, okay. So that's that's kind of what we're talking about. We're talking about the way that certain assumptions, like individualism, right, and like positivism, where it's like you only care about what you can observe and what you can see. And then ahistoricism, the idea that throughout history and throughout different cultures, it's the same disease, it doesn't change. These are all too simplistic, right? We, we, you know, we see that culture and social context not only shapes our understanding of ourselves and our knowledge, but um, most things, really, everything, in a, in a way, and, and also mental illness itself. Right. Um, so, so we talked about history like a week ago. Today we went to psychiatry. We'll get more into psychotherapy next week. Okay. Um, any questions about what we talked about? Lecture. Do you mind just clicking on the child carriers just to yeah. see if what like any other people do that? <clears throat> well, that's true for other mental illnesses, not just schizophrenia. That like the uh, you know, typic presentation is different from like the genotypic, like presence of pathology based on a more community centered like cultural philosophy. And even though I think it's like good to highlight that, like a lot of patients who were violent were like given a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Like research shows that seven percent of patients with schizophrenia are going to commit like. Uh, an extremely violent act resulting, like resulting in like death or dismemberment of somebody, and 
like, like, you know, I defended mentally ill people, and I, they're most often the victim of crime, but I think this psychiatrists, you need to remember that there is that 7% that are at risk of violence as a product of having their own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and again, the point is, you know, Dr. Rose will make a point to let you know that, yes, patients with schizophrenia statistically will commit more crimes. Nonetheless, again, they are far more likely to be the. No, and I agree with that. Right? I just, well, but there's something about the way that schizophrenia gets imagined, mm -hmm. conceptualized, understood. No, no. It, becomes, it becomes like a fear. Yeah, right? yeah. And I think a lot of that, though, is like these, like, uh, like these news stories, like that um, patient with schizophrenia in the New York subway who pushed that um, you know, woman to her death. And then those stories become kind of like poster journals. Mm -hmm. yeah. like, so then Ryan thinks this is. And yeah, and then it seems like they're kind of a thing. And that's you know why the, the New York City like has decided to kind of remove the mentally ill from the streets, like despite mm -hmm. not meeting kind of commitment criteria. Mm -hmm. so. so that's that's a good example about how social attitudes and fears kind of drive something that we think we should be doing because of care, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not. I think there's that there's a definite recognition though that like part of this is driven by these like very scary incidents that are caused. But it's interesting that these are the incidents that draw our attention, right? Because exactly. there, there are a lot of scary incidents that are as scary that and as horrifying that don't get talked about in this context. Yes, or the violence done against patients with schizophrenia, you know, like right. that doesn't get right. So it becomes yeah, and there's something about the associations within schizophrenia and blackness that we found about the history. That renders it more kind of, I think, susceptible to like these kinds of social identifications and reactions. Mm -hmm. So like these are all kind of part of this response. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a lecture by Dr. Abdel Aziz Abawab. For more, please visit his YouTube page, which is linked to at renderingunconscious.org, where you can view this lecture as well as other lectures that he's done. As always, huge thanks to Carl Abrahamson for contributing the intro and outro music to Rendering Unconscious podcast. You can visit his website, carlabrahamson.com, and follow him at social media, carl.abrahamson at Instagram, and carlabrahamson at TikTok. And now this song, We Will Be Outside the Box, from the album, The Cutting Up of Love and Language, a collaboration with Pete Murphy, available at petemurphy.bandcamp.com, as well as streaming on Spotify. Enjoy. We will be encouraging others to think outside the box. We will be sexual to pink outside the box. To think outside the box. To think outside the box. Outside the pink box.